Specialty Story, session number 210. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to talk to amazing physicians about their specialty, why they chose it, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, and so much more. This week, we're talking to Dr. James Gill, a forensic pathologist, about his job, what he, again, what he likes about it, what he doesn't like about it, some unique things about the forensic world, including being involved in court cases and going to, to court and giving testimony at court. He's been in practice now out of training for 24 years. We start the conversation with Dr. Gill about why he chose forensic pathology. Well, I'd say I started my interest in forensics in college. I worked at a summer as an intern in the crime lab in Connecticut mm. uh, in the, foren- uh, in the I guess, the, um, the serology section, which back then there wasn't even really DNA on the scene yet. Uh, so I worked uh, in the crime lab there. That got me interested. I decided to go into medicine. And then between my first and second year of medical school, I spent the summer at the Connecticut Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, kind of doing a summer internship. I did a little research, and I also helped out uh, with autopsies and so forth. So that really kind of um, kind of put the nail in the coffin, so to speak. And at that point, I was, I was pretty firmly committed to uh, uh, to forensic pathology. Was it during your time uh, exploring the the forensic side where you where you were made aware of this forensic pathologist, this physician who was also part of the team? Well, actually, my, my father is uh, an attorney, and at, at that point, he was a defense attorney, and my uh-huh. mother was a nurse. Uh, and so I used to go and watch him uh, um, in court, and uh, he used to handle murder trials and things like that. Um, so I always had kind of that legal and medical background from my from my parents. Uh, and so I think that was that was part of it, certainly. And I liked science, and I liked figuring things out. Uh, so it all kind of fit together for me. Yeah. For medical students that you may interact with, what what sort of myths or misconceptions are there around forensic pathology or maybe more generally pathology? I think for forensic pathology, uh, I think a lot of people think that we just do homicide autopsies all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's actually a very small part of our work. Our main work really is about public health. Uh, and the ver- a very small fraction of the deaths that we investigate are homicides. So we deal with uh, uh, sudden infant death syndrome. We deal with uh, drug intoxication deaths, um, sudden natural deaths in young people uh, that are unexpected. Mm. Uh, And and so there's a lot of uh, work that we do uh, and a lot of data and information that we provide to many other stakeholders, many other uh, people such as the Department of Transportation, Department of Labor, child fatality review committees. Uh, We work uh, once a month. We uh, spend time with the trauma uh, trauma team at Bridgeport Hospital, one of the local trauma centers, mm-hmm. uh, and we review all of their deaths that came through the hospital that were trauma related. Uh, and so we provide with them, uh, we give them the information that we find at autopsy, uh, and so they can learn from that and see the next patient that comes in with this particular set of 
circumstances, maybe they'll they'll look for something different or treat something differently. Mm. Um, and so our work, we're always trying to think of how we can help the living. Uh, and I think a lot of people think, oh, you just deal with dead people. You're just doing autopsies. And I would say, no, I mean, I speak with families several times a week um, trying to answer their questions. Uh, and we play a big role in bereavement uh, for families as well. Um, so I, I think the multifaceted nature of our work is something that people may not grasp, you know, that we we do deal with public health. We deal with certainly homicides. Uh, we deal with teaching, uh, testifying in court, dealing with the police, dealing with families. Uh, th- there's a lot of components to our work. Wow, that's interesting. When you mentioned bereavement, I, I'm assuming for, for a student listening to this who may not know that word or understand what that is, I'm assuming maybe maybe in lay terms, you're giving families closure. Is is that a good way of saying that? Yeah, I think it is. Some some people don't like the word closure, I guess, but um, I, I think we're trying to help them uh, negotiate one of the most uh, um, you know, terrible times in their lives. I mean, yeah. they've just lost someone they love uh, and they have questions about it. So they want to know, you know, first of all, why did they die? Uh, did they suffer? Was it quick? Was it slow? What happened? Um, uh, was there foul play involved? So we can try and answer those questions for them. And I think uh, those answers can help them understand it and hopefully accept what happened. Um, you know, uh, uh, and I think that is, uh, is a big part of our role. Unfortunately, I think what happens a lot of times with hospital deaths is that th- there's kind of an abrupt transition often, often mm-hmm. where the person dies, physician speaks to the you know the family maybe for a few minutes uh, and that's it uh, and at that point the family may be in shock they may, may not have really thought about things and it takes some time for them to process things and start thinking about it and coming up with questions and so forth so we um, uh, can kind of fill that gap uh, and can try and help uh, answer those questions we re- you know we deal with many hospital deaths. We review medical records and so forth. Uh, and so, again, trying to answer their questions uh, and so they can understand what happened. Yeah. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good forensic pathologist? Yeah, I mean, I think having kind of being inquisitive, trying to be able to wanting to figure things out, um, liking uh, being uh, enjoying problem solving. Uh, you know, I never know what I'm going to come across each day when I come into the office, uh, and I never know what I'm going to find on the autopsy table. So trying to figure it out in that unknown uh, is very challenging and very stimulating. I, I think also being a very detailed-oriented person, someone who can uh, focus on the details uh, and, and realize that, that those can be very important, and they can actually make or break uh, certain cases. Uh, and so that's an important, I think, trait uh, to have. Also, empathy, you know, you're going to be dealing with families uh, is very important. Uh, Being a good teacher is also important because not only for families and for students, but when we testify in court, a big part of testifying in court is teaching. And we have a jury there and you have to explain sometimes very complicated medical issues to them so they can understand it. And so we have to be able to translate our medical jargon uh, into, into words that they can understand uh, and so they can make an informed decision about what happened in a particular case. Yeah, very interesting. Talk about um, what a typical day looks like for you. Well, generally, uh, it varies from day to day as far as autopsy versus paper. So in a typical week, uh, a medical examiner in Connecticut may be on 
uh, autopsy two or three days of the week, and then they're on paper the other days. So paper days, you're not going to be doing any autopsies. Uh, you're going to be working on paperwork. Maybe you'll be doing some teaching. Maybe you'll be going to court. Uh, on your autopsy days, a typical autopsy day for me, uh, we have our morning conference at nine o'clock. So we go through all the all the deaths that have come in the previous 24 hours. We review any scene photographs. Uh, and then we kind of divide the cases up uh, and we go down and we start doing our autopsy. Sometimes uh, we may have to get x-rays first. Uh, we may be waiting for the police to come. Uh, then we'll take our photographs of the body and we'll start our external and internal examination of the body. Uh, generally, um, you know, most autopsies are done by noon or one. So it's, you know, it's kind of the morning you're down there doing uh, your autopsies. Uh, we kind of limit it to, to the most three autopsies per day per doctor. Um, some days it may be one, some days two or three. Um, some days it may be a very complicated multiple gunshot wound case. Some days it may be a very straightforward uh, young person who overdosed on fentanyl. Uh, so it varies. You know, again, you never know what you're going to see. Uh, and then in the afternoon, we're dictating our cases and we have a another conference at three o'clock in the afternoon to discuss the day's cases, to review them in a group. Um, talk about any teaching points or any uh, interesting findings or, or questions that, that they may have. Uh, and then we kind of finish up paperwork and, and other reports. And then we're done. You know, it's pretty much a nine to five type job. We have investigators who are on 24 seven. So they go to the scenes for us and they, they handle most of the hospital calls and so forth. Um, so it's a very reasonable lifestyle. Yeah. Um, we're generally on call for weekends, maybe uh, every third weekend where we come in and do the autopsies and, and then you're done, you know. Uh, um, so uh, again, um, as far as call, um, we have some overnight call. We each take uh, a handful of overnight calls uh, uh, a month. Um, and that really is call from home. And it's really just a backup for the investigators if they have a question about whether or not a certain death needs to be brought into the medical examiner's office. Or we also get calls from organ and tissue donors, uh, those uh, agencies that are responsible for that donation. Because if a person uh, has been declared dead by, say, neurologic criteria, so they're still on a, they're still on a vent, uh, but they're essentially brain dead but they want to try and do proceed with organ donation. If that's a medical examiner death, they need to clear that with us. Mm. Um, and so we get the call at three in the morning. Is it okay? Are there, are there any restrictions and so forth? And we'll pretty much invariably allow that to proceed because it's too important of a thing for us to stand in the way. Talk about, you mentioned the investigators who are on scene. We've had a lot of great shows that I used to love, even during medical school, watched a lot of CSI in medical school, and then we had Bones, that that glamorized this forensic world. So are there situations where, as a medical examiner, you're going out to a scene, or is that strictly for investigators? Uh, you know, it depends a lot on your jurisdiction. Um, you know, there are some offices where uh, a medical examiner will go to every homicide. They may not have their own investigators, mm -hmm. right? Um, so it depends a lot uh, on the jurisdiction. If there's something unusual, if it's a plane crash, if it's a multiple homicide, usually we'll send one of the, the medical examiners to that as well. Uh, but we train, you know, our investigators are very well trained. They're very experienced. Uh, and they always have a medical examiner backup. So if they have any questions, they can always reach somebody. Uh, but they can handle uh, most of the uh, uh, the cases very well uh, on their own. Um, I, I think they actually 
they have kind of the best and the worst jobs because the best part of it is that they're the first people to really get a crack at the death and try and figure out what happened. Mm. The worst part is that, you know, every day they're, they're interacting with families that have just, they're in, in a state of shock really, because, you know, they're going to the scene uh, and the family's there and they're going to investigate the, their family's loved one uh, who, who's died. Um, and, and so, you know, it, I think that is one of the most challenging jobs that there is, those scene investigators. Yeah. You know, as far as, you know, some of the television shows, uh, you know, I think it's great that it's brought more people uh, or made more people aware of what we do uh, and have gotten more people interested in going into our field. I think that's a great, great part of it. You know, the the speed of which they they do things is a little maybe unrealistic. Um, you mean you but, don't get uh, DNA back in like twenty minutes? No, we don't. Or toxicology, <laughs> or you know, so it usually does take a little longer. Um, but you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm more than happy to you know to have my profession glamorized and and get people interested in it. That that doesn't bother me. Yeah. Um, something kind of, uh, current event, I, I would love to hypothesize with you, uh, kind of t- talk hypothetically, um, with what happened in, in Houston this past week where, um, at least eight people passed away at a concert. And, and then there's this, a few reports that there's potentially someone injecting people with a, a substance as a medical examiner, even without hearing those reports, would would those people come in to a medical examiner to be evaluated and and looked over head to toe? And would you have potentially caught little puncture wounds like that? Well, absolutely, they'd be investigated by the medical examiner's office because there are sudden, unexpected deaths and related potentially related to trauma. Um, you know, puncture wounds. You know, we we look carefully, but usually, what we're more interested in is what's in the body. So. Yeah. All these, all decedents like that would undergo full toxicology testing. Now, we, we, we've seen similar situations like this before with big crowd surges. And usually what the cause of death is, is, is it's a positional asphyxia. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a chest compression where um, the people in the front just can't breathe. Yeah. And they essentially die standing up uh, because they're so compressed. Uh, and there have been instances at the Hodge. Um, uh, where, you know, storms of people will, will kind of flood into a tunnel. There have been, uh, um, there's a celebrity years ago, a rap, a baseball, a basketball game in New York city where a crowd of people stampeded in, uh, there was a who concert in, in Cincinnati years ago where a bunch of people, you know, uh, rushed into the, into the auditorium to get, you know, it was kind of, a um, uh, there wasn't reserved seating. It was kind of, uh, uh, you know, general admission. Yeah. Uh, and so people got compressed and, and it's not from blunt injury or from being stampeded. It's actually an asphyxial death from chest compression. Uh, and the medical examiner should, you know, in deaths like that, you do a full autopsy, you exclude other types of injury, you exclude other intoxications. Uh, and then with the history and the circumstances, you end up kind of uh, formulating your final diagnosis. Interesting. Interesting. Thanks for that. So. Talk about the path to become a forensic pathologist. Obviously, four years typically of medical school, and then and then what's next? Right. Then you need to do three or four years in anatomic or anatomic and clinical pathology, so typical hospital pathology. Uh, and that's where you learn your surgical pathology. You're, you're going to be doing some autopsies there as well. Um, you learn your cytology and, and so forth. Uh, and you need to become boarded in that uh, in order to 
ultimately become board certified in forensic pathology. But after your three or four year um, uh, residency in anatomic or anatomic and clinical pathology, you need to do a fellowship in forensic pathology. Um, and that's a year long. Uh, and that's typically at a you know a medical examiner's office or a coroner's office, uh, and you're essentially working as a medical examiner. You know you're you have your own cases. Uh, initially, you're going to have a lot of supervision. You're going to be doing your cases with another, you know, medical examiner. But it, during the, as the year progresses, you become more independent, uh, and you do homicides. You do uh, you know people who die in fires and drug overdoses. You get to you, during that year, you want to be able to see and do as many different types of investigate as many different types of deaths as you can. So you become very comfortable in uh, in doing those autopsies, making sure you understand what needs to be documented, what you need to look for, uh, and what the body is telling you. Uh, and so then when you go and you start practicing as a, as a medical examiner, you've got a lot of those cases already under your belt, so to speak, uh, and, um, uh, and you're more comfortable with, with, with what comes along. Now, they're always still going to be challenging cases and unusual cases, and that's part of the part of the interest, really. Um, and we're always kind of learning and teaching ourselves new things. Um, but uh, that fellowship is is really your year to to really uh, to to really grow and really grasp uh, what you need to know to become a, a forensic pathologist. Yeah, how competitive is it? Uh, you know, there, there are many spots, uh, I think, that go unfilled each year, many fellowship spots. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, some of that may be because there's just not enough funding for it for those spots, and they may not be even posting for them. There are some very competitive programs, uh, you know, traditionally uh, New York and, and, and uh, Baltimore and Miami uh, uh, and some, some programs in Texas, Chicago. You know, they, they can be very competitive, many people applying for those fellowship spots. Uh, more and more um, uh, fellowships are starting, though. Connecticut, we just started one this year. Um, I think um, Washington, D.C. is recently starting one, Austin, Texas. So there are more programs out there. Um, and so as we get more people into forensics, hopefully it will become even more competitive because um, that means that we're, we're getting a lot of people interested in the field. Um, but uh, right now, there is a, a, a severe workforce shortage for forensic pathologists. There are not a, enough forensic pathologists in the country to cover all those jurisdictions. Hmm. Right now, there are about 500 or so board-certified practicing forensic pathologists. But if all the jurisdictions were covered, we would need 12, 1,300. Wow. So, yeah. So if you look on our name website, for example, where they list all the open jobs, there are you know, probably 30 or 40 openings all around the country, which is good for new forensic pathologists because they really have their choice in where they want to work. And it's also good because it's driving salaries up because there's such competition now to get these forensic pathologists. Um, Many offices are realizing, okay, I've got to raise my salary if I want to be able to hire somebody. Uh, Plus, the federal government actually is helping too. There's some, um, some draft legislation that's looking to help fund more forensic pathology fellowship programs, as well as provide some loan forgiveness for student loans for people who go into forensic pathology. So I think those would be two factors that will kind of help get more people into forensic pathology. I I hate to hear when, you know, when a a resident or, you know, is having to decide about their, what they, what their career is going to be based on how they can pay off their student loans, right? So many students, so many residents uh, have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in in student loans that they need to pay off. And unfortunately, that's something that it's real life and they have to consider. 
Yeah. Um, but I think that the good side about forensics is the salaries are increasing and there, there's this potential loan forgiveness program. You know, the other thing I should say about forensics is there are other ways to supplement your income. I mean, there are a lot of forensic pathologists who will do some private consulting or they'll do per diem work. So they may go for a few days a month and work in another office because of the shortage. A lot of offices need this per diem locum help. Uh, and so a lot of, um, uh, you know, junior forensic pathologists, you know, kind of recently graduated uh, working forensic pathologists can actually supplement their income pretty well by doing some of this um, uh, per diem work. Yeah, very interesting. And it, can you as a, a, a forensic pathologist also, when, when you talk about consulting, is that with potential like lawyers doing medical legal stuff? Yep, a combination. It could be criminal, yeah. civil. So you're right. Um, and, uh, you know, there are uh, either criminal or civil attorneys, med mal cases, for example, or even just criminal cases yeah. where someone's looking for a second opinion or they need someone just to review the autopsy report just to make sure for their due diligence uh, that something hasn't been missed and that everything's been done properly. Uh, and, and so, yes, there's, uh, you know, quite a bit of uh, medical, legal or you know, consulting work available for forensic pathologists out there. Yeah. Sure is. My, my wife is a, a neurologist who specializes in concussion. And over the last year or so, she's gotten really involved in the medical legal world. And we, we in, in the medical world, there's this typical kind of stance that lawyers are bad, but seeing her work and, and how she's able to uh, impact these patients um, and, and get them the, 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 typically monetary settlements that they need, the money that they need to support themselves after a horrific brain injury, like they wouldn't get that if it wasn't for a physician helping them. And it's it's really opened my eyes to like, why do we have this um, kind of divide in the medical world? And, and maybe it's just in my in my mind that uh, ooh, lawyers are bad and, and don't talk to lawyers, but it seems to be pervasive throughout the medical world. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think, um, you know, obviously it, it depends a lot on the consultant. And as long as the consultant is there just to, you know, to give to be an honest broker and, and give their honest opinion, you know, I think it helps both sides, really, yeah. um, to understand what happened. You know, there are good and bad consultants and good and bad physicians and good and bad lawyers everywhere. Right. Yep. Um, um, so, you know, that's just part of the world we live in. But, um, uh, yeah, I think if, uh, you know, if you can find something that was missed or you can explain something maybe better than, than another way, um, then that can be very helpful. Um, and if someone has had, you know, if, if there has been malpractice or something, well, you know, then, then that person, you know, sh should get compensated for that. Yeah. For the osteopathic student listening to this, is there any sort of negative bias that they need to overcome to become a forensic pathologist? Uh, not with me. I, I, my deputy chief <laughs> medical examiner, who I hired, is is a DO. So you know, I know some some great you know DOs. I know some great MDs. I know some so so MDs. I know some so so. Yeah. You know, to me, yeah, I. Uh, um, it's more you know what kind of work they do, what person they're like. Um, you know, they've uh, passed all the tests. They've they've gone through taking the the, the science, the medicine. Um, yeah, it doesn't make any difference to me. I, I suppose there are some people out there who may be a little more short-sighted about things like that, but, but, uh, um, yeah, uh, not, not with me. Yeah. What do you say to the, the student who never considers pathology or forensic pathology as a, uh, potential specialty, even though they may be like the world's preeminent forensic pathologist, if they were to give it a try, because, 
in their minds, and I've heard this before from students, in their mind, they go into medicine to help patients and they don't see pathology as helping patients. Right. Yeah, no, pathology helps patients tremendously. I, you know, Juan Rosai, a, f- a famous, um, he's the late Juan, uh, Juan Rosai, he wrote a, uh, a book and it was called Guiding the Surgeon's Hand. He was a, an incredible surgical pathologist. And, and just in that small part of it, you can see how the diagnoses uh, and the information that the pathologist gives to the surgeon or to the treating clinician really be- has a big role on, on the treatment of that, that patient, right? Um, so that, that's, you know, a, a very minor part of it. But the big picture for forensic pathologists is more of a societal or public health. Uh, and so we're looking at that big picture. Uh, you know, why are people uh, dying of, uh, of drug intoxication? What drug is it? Uh, you know, where in the state are they dying? Uh, what age group? Uh, what other drugs are being, are being used? Uh, so all, all this thing that, again, how the, how the dead can help the living, um, we, really, we really believe that. I, I mean, we've had instances where we, we find maybe a faulty medical device, right, that, that caused someone to die. We report that to the FDA. And so now they track that. Mm. And maybe that's a device that needs to be pulled off the market. Or we find a, a crib that's defective and, a, and an infant got caught in it and died from positional asphyxia from being wedged in that crib. We report that to the Consumer Product Safety Commission, and the Consumer Product Safety Commission pulls that that crib off the market. Wow! You know, uh, and so we're helping the living uh, in our work that we do every day. Not only the bereavement and talking to families, but but the things that we can do um, to help uh, other stakeholders and so forth. Um, and, and so I would tell those those people that, yeah, you know, pathology, forensic pathology, even though you're not maybe dealing with a, a living patient, you know, face to face, your work is, in, our work is incredibly helpful to the living uh, and really does save lives and improves the public health uh, in many, many ways. That's awesome. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into forensic pathology? I guess that, you know, that friends of pathologists are actually really normal people. Um, you know, you always had, I, I think just like everyone, I had this misconception that, oh, I don't know, I'm probably going to come across some strange players out there and, you know, from TV, the, the cigar smoking guy who doesn't wear gloves. And But no, I mean, forensic pathologists are, are very normal people. They have families, they have typical hobbies um, and they, you know, and, and they're, they're great people to work with. Um uh, they're very, uh, you know, interested in their work uh, and dedicated to their work. You know, again, when I was kind of starting out, you know, not many people were going into forensics. And one of the reasons was, you know, because of money and, and no one knew about it and so forth. So the people in my kind of age bracket, I guess, went into forensics because they really liked it. They really wanted to do it. It wasn't like, well, I can't get a job at a hospital. I'm going to go work as a coroner or, or, you know, they just kind of fell into it or they they we did it because we really, we really liked it. Um, uh, and so, and I've had some great mentors, uh, and, you know, during my training, Charles Hirsch, who was the chief medical examiner in New York City, was one of my mentors in forensic pathology. And he was really the gold standard in my book about what a forensic pathologist does and can be. So what do you like the most about forensic pathology? Yeah, the thing I like the most is that every day it's something different and you never know what you're going to see. Um, and every day you're, you're dealing with, with different people, with the police, with prosecutors, with families, with public health people, with students. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's that challenge of trying to figure out what happened so you can help answer those questions 
um, later on. So uh, again, I think um, uh, you know the I, I always like to kind of be able to, to solve problems and try and figure things out. Uh, and and this is the perfect job, you know, because I really get to do that. I get to do additional testing if I need to. I get to consult with people, with toxicologists and neuropathologists and radiologists and, who, you know, whoever I need to, uh, dentists, you know, um, uh, whoever I need to kind of help uh, figure out this case, I, I can I can get to. And I talk to them and they teach me something. Um, and so I'm constantly learning. You know, every autopsy, every time I testify in court, I still learn something uh, to make myself uh, a better forensic pathologist. What do you like the least? Um, you know, I, right now I think so, is some of it is just the the staffing and some of the funding challenges that we're all facing. That you know that we're we are many offices are short staffed, uh, and so um, you know that has the risk of 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 cutting into your practice, of, of making you cut uh, the risk of cutting corners and so forth, which we we all have to kind of guard against uh, and make sure that we we still do quality work. So I, I think the the increasing caseloads that we're seeing, increasing numbers of the opioid deaths and, and homicides, um, and not enough staffing, those are those are the challenges. Um, and uh, that that's the part I wish I worked, you know, with, with all the staff I needed in a in a great modern big facility. Uh, right now, we're, we we still got some challenges uh, ahead of us. Uh, we're not quite there yet, uh, but uh, I think most of the policymakers out there. I think realize I'm, I'm, I think they're starting to realize the important work that we do, uh, and not only the important work that we do, but the but what happens if we don't do it right? I mean, if if we fail to make a right diagnosis, if we fail to diagnose that death as a homicide or call something a homicide that's not a homicide, um, that has major repercussions for so many people, so many stakeholders. So we really want to get it right, uh, and we just need sometimes some help. Uh, some uh, staffing support, some facility support uh, to get it done. Um, and, and so I think that's the kind of the biggest challenge for us right now as a profession. When most people think about compensation for physicians, we, we think, in, in, at least in this country, of, of insurance. How does that work with, with forensic pathology? Is it, are, are the patients' insurance companies paying for autopsies and stuff like that, or is that coming from a different pool of money? Yeah, absolutely different flow of money. There's, you know, families don't pay anything for a medical examiner autopsy unless, if, you know, if they want to get a copy of the report or something. Usually there's a charge for that. Uh, but um, we medical examiners, forensic pathologists um, typically work for some government body, right? I mean, we're a, a government agency. Um, and so we're funded by that government agency. Now, there are some private groups that will contract with, with a government agency and, and kind of do the work privately in, in a sense, but most are, you know, I work, I'm, a, I'm, I'm employed by the state of Connecticut, right? Um, and so my salary is going to be governed by the, the state of Connecticut and, uh, and and by labor unions for my medical examiners. They're, they're in a union, you know, so uh, there are different things that you're going to have to, to, to face. Um, but yeah, there's no insurance Insurance doesn't even really reimburse for hospital autopsies. Yeah. You know, if if even if the treating doctor wants to have an autopsy and they get permission from the family, yeah, hospital. You know, insurance company's not going to pay for that. The person's dead, and and so that's one of the reasons why I think hospital autopsies have also decreased in number uh, because you know there's there's no 
um, incentive for a hospital or for a pathologist necessarily to do autopsies unless they really want to, unless they're really interested in that and they really want to try and help a surgeon or a treating doctor or a family. Uh, there's really not much of a financial incentive for a hospital to have to, to do more autopsies, uh, unfortunately. Um, and so in many places, the medical examiner has become the uh, uh, the autopsy person of the community. For example, today we had an autopsy we did on a woman who's in her 90s, and she had died from complications of uh, of surgery for some stent placements and so forth, advanced you know, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Family wanted an autopsy. It was a death that was reported to us because she died of a complication of the treatment, but we were happy to let the hospital do the autopsy, you know, and sometimes it's better for the hospital to do it because then the treating doctors are there, mm. they can see the findings, but the pathologist at the hospital actually refused to do it. <laughs> um, and so we said, okay, well, you know, it, we're going to probably end up certifying the death anyway. So we did the autopsy for this family. Um, normally, it's a death we we probably wouldn't have pursued an autopsy on because there was enough medical records and medical information to know why this person died. But the family still had questions. And so we said, okay, we'll do it for you. Um, and you know, again, we're trying to answer their questions. But in my opinion, in that case, the hospital really dropped the ball. Either the, the pathologist thought it may have been a, a medical legal issue and they didn't mm -hmm. want to be involved or they had other things they wanted to do. Um, and unfortunately, then the, the family, you know, that kind of can get stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see any major changes coming to your specialty, whether it's those 20 minute DNA <laughs> runs or um, anything that those coming up through training now should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of areas that we were, we were, we've already started to expand into, and we're always kind of a little late to the game to our clinical counterparts. But radiology, um, you know, CAT scans and MRIs, uh, more and more offices are are, are getting those uh, into their facilities. So um, uh, doing CAT scans, full body, you know, CAT scans on decedents um, is something that I think is forensic pathologists are going to need to have that skill available. Uh, you know, to be able to take care of that in the future. Um, the other thing would be molecular testing, uh, you know, molecular diagnosis. We're starting to do that now more with um, uh, some of the, the, the cardiac channelopathies, for example, some of the molecular um, uh, abnormalities that can cause a sudden death. Um, and we can uh, use that also looking at why people maybe develop a DVT and a, a pulmonary embolism. Maybe they have a, a hereditary thrombophilia. So we're so forensic pathologists are getting more now into some of the molecular testing that our clinical you know counterparts are doing all the time. Um, but again, it's expensive. We're working for the government, uh, et, et cetera. So it, it takes us a little time to to, to get there. Uh, but it's you know it is a way for us to solve more cases, right? Uh, we've all had these young people in their 20s who suddenly drop dead, and you do the autopsy and you find nothing. They've got a completely normal heart. Uh, now we can do molecular testing and we find, oh, they have a, a genetic abnormality in one of their their cardiac and their channels, you know, and then their sodium potassium channels uh, that is responsible for this. And that's not only important information to, for the certification of the death, that's important information for the family to know because a lot of these deaths will run in families and now families actually can get tested for that, that specific mutation to see if they carry it. Yeah. So again, how our work can help the living. Yeah. Love it. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a forensic pathologist? Absolutely. I, I you know, I, uh, 
I, I don't think I made the wrong choice. I'm very, very happy. Uh, you know, after 20 plus years of doing this, I, I still enjoy coming into the office every day and trying to figure out, still enjoy doing autopsies. Um, you know, I'm still on the autopsy service um, and uh, I, I still enjoy the challenge and still enjoy the, the work of helping people. So, yep, no, I'm, I'm very, very happy with, with what I chose to do. And, and I, I, that's why I've stayed doing it. Any last words of wisdom for the student listening to this, thinking about forensic pathology in their future? Yeah, I would say try it out. I would say, you know, if you're a medical student, call up your local medical examiner's office or coroner and say, look, can I just come for the day and just watch an autopsy? Um, you know, and if they say no, well, you know, give me a call or send me an email and I will, and I've done this for other students. I'll make a phone call. I'll drop an email to the, that office and say, look, you need to let this person come in and, and see what you're doing because we need people who are interested in forensic pathology to, 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 to see what it's like. So then maybe they'll decide to go into it. Uh, I think exposure, um, very early, you know, first, second year of medical school. Even college. I mean, we've been starting to, to speak to college students about forensic pathology um, because sometimes even pathology residency, you know, we, we do still have some folks who are in their third or fourth year of, of residency in pathology. And then they all of a sudden they discover forensic pathology. Right. Um, and so that's great. Um, but I wish they, they, they could have discovered it a little earlier. Um, because sometimes training programs and fill and, and so forth, a lot of them fill a, a year or two or more ahead of time. Uh, and so it becomes a little challenge to get into a fellowship then. Although I, I should say that in 2024, we're starting a match program. Um, and so I think that's going to level the playing field for a lot of, um, you know, for the residents and make it a little easier and, and fairer. And, and you don't have to apply two or three years in advance and to, to, to get into a program. Um, and so that's on the horizon, and I think that'll be a good thing for everyone. All right, so there you have it. Again, Dr. James Gill, a forensic pathologist who's been out of training now for 24 years. If you are interested in forensic pathology, I had another forensic pathologist on this very podcast way back in episode 24. You can find that at specialtystories.com slash 24. That's with Dr. Judy Melanick the author of the New York Times bestseller, Working Stiff. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.